You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. DDoS remains the most characteristic mode of cyber ops in Russia's hybrid war against Ukraine. A leaked LockBit 3.0 builder is being used in ransomware attacks. Meta takes down Russian disinformation networks. The Lazarus Group is spear phishing with bogus job offers. Joe Kerrigan looks at SNAP benefit scams. Our guest is Grain Hasselt of Abnormal Security with the latest in advanced email attack trends. And the cloud? It's complicated. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, September 28th, 2022. DDoS remains the go to mode of cyber ops in Russia's hybrid war against Ukraine. Concerns about attacks against critical infrastructure may be rising. But other more commonplace cyber attacks remain typical in the hybrid war. NetScout's DDoS Threat Intelligence Report for the first half of 2022 indicates that distributed denial-of-service attacks have remained the typical tactic Russian cyber operators have used against targets in Ukraine, and especially against targets in countries sympathetic to Ukraine. It's also been one of the characteristic techniques employed against Russian sites. NetScout's report reads, in part, As Russian ground troops entered Ukraine in late February, there was a significant uptick in DDoS attacks targeting governmental departments, online media organizations, financial firms, hosting providers, and cryptocurrency-related firms, as previously documented. However, the ripple effect resulting from the war had a dramatic impact on DDoS attacks in other countries. Some examples the report points out include... The number of attacks against Ireland increased when it provided services to Ukrainian organizations. Following its abstention from the UN Security Council and General Assembly resolutions denouncing Russia's conduct in Ukraine, India noticed a discernible rise in DDoS attacks. Taiwan experienced its single highest number of DDoS attacks on the same day as Belize after publicly endorsing Ukraine. When Finland announced that it will be applying for NATO membership, DDoS attacks increased by 258% year-over-year. DDoS attacks connected to Killnet, a gang of cyber attackers allied with Russia, were directed at Poland, Romania, Lithuania, and Norway. Russia experienced a nearly three times increase in daily DDoS attacks since the conflict with Ukraine began and continued through the end of the reporting period, according to the report. While the frequency and severity of DDoS attacks in North America remained relatively consistent, 
satellite telecommunications providers experienced an increase in high-impact DDoS attacks, especially after providing support for Ukraine's communications infrastructure. It's not all DDoS in the hybrid war, however, especially not where criminal interests intersect or coincide with combat support. There are also signs, for example, of increased ransomware attacks against Ukrainian targets. Researcher Vladislav Rudetsky reports that the Bloody Gang has used the LockBit 3.0 builder leaked last week to deploy malicious code in that country. Bleeping Computer says that Bloody, a relatively new gang, doesn't seem to do much development of its own, referring to repurposed tools leaked or abandoned by other groups. Those have included Babook, Conti, and now LockBit. Meta, the corporate parent of Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, announced yesterday that it had taken down two networks, one Russian, the other Chinese, for engaging in coordinated inauthenticity. The networks are unrelated. The Russian disinformation operation, Meta said, was unusually large, well-constructed, and focused on disseminating Russian propaganda concerning the war against Ukraine. Meta stated, The Russian network, the largest of its kind we've disrupted since the war in Ukraine began, targeted primarily Germany, France, Italy, Ukraine, and the UK, with narratives focused on the war and its impact a sprawling network of over 60 websites impersonating legitimate news organizations. The legitimate news organizations impersonated included Spiegel and Bild in Germany and The Guardian in the UK. The impersonations were carefully and convincingly executed and were done so at apparently considerable expense. The stories carried in them to a considerable extent concentrated on disinformation charging Ukraine with responsibility for Russian atrocities committed in Bucha and elsewhere. They were often amplified by Russian social media channels, including accounts belonging to Russian diplomatic missions, and they also engaged in pushing petitions designed as astroturf support for Russian interests. Given the amount of care, talent, and expense devoted to establishing and maintaining the inauthentic networks, it's noteworthy that the stories they pushed lacked legs— They did not achieve widespread acceptance, and they were generally dismissed soon after publication as disinformation. That experience may suggest the limitations of coordinated inauthenticity. It tends to be less successful when it seeks to persuade than when it aims simply to confuse. Researchers at Sentinel-1 warn that North Korea's Lazarus Group is using phony Crypto.com job offers to distribute macOS malware— The researchers aren't sure how the lures are being distributed, but they suspect the attackers are sending spear phishing messages on LinkedIn. Sentinel-1 notes that this campaign appears to be extending the targets from users of crypto exchange platforms to their employees in what may be a combined effort to conduct both espionage and cryptocurrency theft. So apparently it's a twofer, combining espionage with financially motivated crime. This isn't Pyongyang's first use of bogus job offers as fishbait, and it's unlikely to be the last. And finally, what's the internet weather forecast? Cloudy with a high probability of complexity. A study by Venify has found that 81% of organizations have sustained a cloud-related security incident within the past 12 months, while 45% experienced four incidents over the past year. The report says... 
The underlying issue for these security incidents is the dramatic increase in security and operational complexity connected with cloud deployments. And since the organizations in this study currently host two-fifths of their applications in the cloud, but expect to increase to 57% over the next 18 months, this complexity will continue to increase. Kevin Bocek, Venify's Vice President of Security Strategy and Threat Intelligence, stated, Attackers are now on board with businesses' shift to cloud computing. The ripest target of attack in the cloud is identity management, especially machine identities. Each of these cloud services, containers, Kubernetes clusters, and microservices needs an authenticated machine identity, such as a TLS certificate, to communicate securely. If any of these identities is compromised or misconfigured, it dramatically increases security and operational risks. Bocek added that part of the problem is a lack of consensus on who is responsible for the security of cloud-based applications, stating, Security teams want to collaborate and share responsibility with the developers who are cloud experts, but all too often they're left out of cloud security decisions. Developers are making cloud-native tooling and architecture decisions that decide approaches to security without involving security teams, and we can already see the results of that approach. Security incidents in the cloud are rapidly growing. Coming up after the break, Joe Kerrigan looks at SNAP benefit scams. Our guest Crane Hasseld of Abnormal Security has the latest in advanced email attack trends. Stay with us. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using Identity Orchestration, 
Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. The team at Abnormal Security recently released their H2 threat report, detailing the latest advanced email attack trends, including increases in business email compromise, the evolution of financial supply chain compromise, and the rise of brand impersonation in credential phishing attacks. Crane Hassold is Director of Threat Intelligence at Abnormal Security. Yeah, so I think one of the big things that really caught my eye was the sort of the more frequent use of social media brands in phishing attacks. And while, you know, social media, you know, using something like LinkedIn or Facebook or even Instagram and things like credential phishing attacks, you know, have been around for a number of years. What's really interesting is now we're starting to see the use of these brands in other types of attacks as well. Um, things like just plain old BEC attacks, uh, business email compromise attacks. What's really interesting, we've started to see some groups start injecting things like LinkedIn into their initial lures um, to make it look like they're trying to get a LinkedIn invoice paid for or something like that. And so we're starting to see this transition into using more robust or comprehensive pretexts within the initial emails that a lot of these cyber criminals are sending to their targets. And what do you suppose is driving this increase? Of, I mean, is it fair to call it sophistication? I think it's sophistication. I think it's also adaptation. I think it is, you know, a, we, we, we see this constantly throughout the years where you see different threat actors trying new and sometimes really obscure things to see what will stick and what won't stick. But I think when you look at something like, when we see the the emergence of trends like this sort of at a larger scale, when more and more actors start jumping on this bandwagon, we we know that a lot of these cyber criminals will communicate with each other on, in underground networks. And so it seems to me that it has sort of, there's been a proven success rate to using some of these different pretexts in the initial attacks. And so when we see something like the emergence of an overarching trend like this, it sort of you know speaks to me that it seems to be working at least, and they're getting enough ROI to make it worth it uh, for them to continue using it. So what are your recommendations then for folks to best protect themselves against this? Yeah. So, you know, when, whenever we're looking at cyber attacks today, you know, most people think of cyber attacks as these technically sophisticated things when in all reality, more and more commonly, they're nothing more than behavioral exploitation. And we're seeing more and more of these attacks that are using nothing more than just basic text to try to persuade a, a target or an employee to do something they wouldn't otherwise do. So first and foremost, making sure that you have defenses in place that are able and equipped to defend against this sort of new age of cyber threats that aren't technically sophisticated. They're not using, you know, malicious attachments. They aren't always using malicious links. It's just pure social engineering. So making sure that you have uh, defenses in place that are equipped and able 
to defend against those attacks. And then also making sure that you have good processes in place to make sure that, you know, if a, if a request does come in from someone who may be impersonating an internal employee, employee or even an external third party, which we've been seeing more and more of recently, um, to make sure there's a process in place to validate those requests. And what kind of, of things are we talking about specifically? I mean, to, to what degree are, are there technical solutions and, and to what degree, as you mentioned, you know, is this a, a matter of just putting procedures in place to make sure that, you know, for example, more than one set of eyes get put on something before a check is written? Yeah, absolutely. So from a, from a technical perspective, it's all about sort of changing the way that we think about email defenses. You know, it used to be, you know, in the old days, about 20, 20 years ago, when, you know, email defenses start, first started evolving, it was all about sort of using these static indicators of compromise to identify malicious artifacts. But now, because those don't really work based on this new age of cyber threats, it's more about using things like machine learning and AI and behavioral analytics to sort of look at identities and relationships and language uh, that's being used and sent from the sender to the receiver and making sure that those, you know, from especially when we're talking about things like impersonation attacks, which are a majority of the attacks that we see today, you know, those are the tactics and techniques that we can use to identify those malicious emails when they come in. The general public doesn't really know about those types of threats, even though they are easily the number one uh, cause of financial loss for businesses all over the world. And so I, we've, we've been seeing this transition from you know, technical attacks like malware-based attacks, ransomware, I think it's all the news, to things like more pure social engineering attacks like social engineering. I think that's definitely going to continue becoming more and more of a problem over the next few years. But one of the things that we have started seeing, which I think is an interesting trend within BEC th threat landscape, is we've started to see a transition away from the internal classic in uh, executive impersonations towards more external third-party impersonations in these BEC attacks. Um, that's something that we've seen really since the beginning of this year. Um, starting in, in January, more than half of all of the BEC attacks that we've seen uh, have impersonated external third parties, which is really notable considering the fact that since its inception, BEC has essentially been known as CEO impersonation attacks, CEO spoofing attacks. And to see these threat actors really start evolving into impersonating external entities um, obviously shows that they're likely making more money from those attacks. And it's also sort of goes against the training that we tell people to look out for when it comes to things like BEC, because most BEC security awareness training focuses on look out for that weird email from the, the CEO that's asking for gift cards. But now you have these more sophisticated attacks that are impersonating known vendors that are compromising email accounts and using language that is totally normal, doesn't include those spelling and grammatical errors. Um, makes them much more realistic and much more impactful when they are successful. That's Crane Hassold from Abnormal Security discussing their recently released H2 threat report. <music> 
And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute and also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Interesting story came by. This is from the Baltimore Banner, and uh, it's written by Brenna Smith, and it's about uh, a a woman who got almost $3,000 of her SNAP benefits, which is uh, the modern version of food stamps. So these are supplemental nutrition and payment. Sounds good. Uh, But yeah, I mean, basically it's for, you know, people who need a little help from the state. Uh, I think generally these are federal funds that get distributed to the states. And then these days they get uh, sent to people on basically what amounts to a debit card. Right. So what's going on here? It's called an EBT card, an electronic benefit transfer card. Yeah. So the woman in this story is named Renee and she's only using her first name. Yeah. And she is a nursing assistant who has children and uh, needs these SNAP benefits. By the way, SNAP stands for Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Okay. It's, like you said, essentially food stamps, but we don't have stamps anymore. Now we have these EBT cards. Right. She got her benefits turned off for some reason uh, and had to reapply for them. And when she reapplied for them, uh, they gave her back benefits, which resulted in a substantial balance on her card. Okay. Now- Something that's interesting in this story is that she starts seeing news stories on her feed about people having their benefits scammed away from them hmm. or or something. And, and there's a whole nother can of worms there that I want. Why is she starting to see these things? How well, does, she's probably doing searches for it when she went through the process of getting her be. money back. It could be. Yeah. But she goes and she checks her balance and she finds out that she's missing about $3,000 in benefits, 2700 bucks. Wow. Uh, she calls the police and the police, this is in Baltimore County, Maryland. The police do not assign this to a police officer. They assign it to a person who's in the academy. Okay. To become a, a, a recruit, essentially. Yeah. He is now a, a police officer. His name is Timothy Valis, and he's been assigned to investigate the case, but he was assigned back when he was in the academy. Yeah. Uh, I think that's interesting. I don't know why that happens. Uh, and I ha- I would have questions for Baltimore County Police as to why that why that happens. Is this a regular practice? Did you send it to this person as a training? Uh, ex- I don't know. I want to know the answer to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Officer Valis now has not been uh, very helpful for this this in this case. And this woman took matters into her own hands and started finding out where these where the card was used, where the benefits were were being spent, because the Department of Human Services. Uh, in Maryland was saying, we're not seeing any fraud on this. Okay. Right? So she says, well, where are my benefits being spent? You have records of that. And she has actually gotten in her car and driven to the stores and asked to be shown the security footage. Hmm. Even one time going to a local police department and saying, they won't show me the, the footage unless I uh, bring a police officer in. And that police officer out of his jurisdiction, uh, the crime occurred out of his jurisdiction. But he went, gave her a police escort and said, let's see the footage. Yeah. to the uh, people at the CVS. And they showed her the footage. And in this footage, she sees people buying large amounts of Similac. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, this this all harkens back to uh, to my interview with Mallory Safaste from Hacking Humans episode 209, where we talk about these benefit scams and we talk about the Similac scams that are going on. Right. So these people are probably quickly monetizing the uh, the money that they've stolen from this woman, the benefit money they've stolen from her, by exploiting other people 
on the uh, who are experiencing the Similac shortage or the or the formula shortage that was happening over the summer. Yeah, so these guys are making these bad guys are making money coming and going. So I, I want to focus on an element of this in the time that we have here, sure. which is that. My understanding is that the cards that people get, the the basically the equivalent of an ATM card, a, yep. a debit card, the versions that at least people in Maryland get who are who are uh, eligible for these benefits do not have chips in them. They don't have chips. They are 100% just correct. Magnetic strip cards, so it's the magnetic strip and a pin, and that is how this woman got her funds stolen. Someone had put a skimmer. In a 7-Eleven. Yeah. And that is something that Officer Valis found. Right. He said, we found a skimmer at the 7-Eleven. Did you shop at the 7-Eleven? She goes, I did, but I don't remember when and I don't remember what I spent. And he says, well, that's where we found the skimmer. So these guys found the skimmer or uh, put a skimmer in 7-Eleven, skimmed the benefits card information, and then they moved down to, uh, or they may have been down in uh, in. Prince George's County, Maryland, which is a little bit further south. And uh, that's where they bought the Similac. Yeah. Now, what's interesting about this is I don't know what a chip costs to put on a, on a, on a credit card, but every single credit card I get in the mail now has a chip and every single debit card I get has a chip. But right. for some reason, the state of Maryland is not putting these chips in the benefit cards and people are losing money. Because skimming doesn't work on the chip cards anymore. So who are the bad guys going to target? They're going to target the people who receive benefits on these cards with no chips on them. Yeah. And it's hurting the most vulnerable population, people that need to eat. Uh, and it's – this is unconscionable, Dave. As, as a taxpayer in Maryland, I'm, I'm upset about this. I don't understand it either. And, and I suppose the easy explanation would be that it probably costs a few cents less or maybe a few bucks less her card to not have the chips in it. My thought is, why are there even cards available that Without don't chips. have chips in them? Yeah, that's I mean, an excellent question. It should. I, I just think it should be a regulatory thing that those have been deprecated, and you shouldn't be able to make new ones. Right. Because, you shouldn't be using old technology for for benefit cards. Right. Why don't poor people get the benefits of the security uh, elements that the the rest of us get as a regular part of doing our our business with banks and so on and so forth. If, if a bank provided me with a card that didn't have some sort of chip in it, I'd be like, what is this? Yeah, I'm not doing business with you. Right, but folks right. who are in need, they don't have they that don't have option. They don't have a choice. Right. And so in this case, they're not being looked out for. Mm -hmm. um, I'm with you. I, I find this very troubling. And uh, I, I find it troubling for a number of reasons. One, you're hurting people, yeah. right? You're, you're, their benefits are getting stolen from them. Two, you're enriching criminals. Mm -hmm. That's all that the state is doing with this, with with these, uh, with these chipless cards. Yeah, somewhere to the tune of uh, a couple hundred thousand dollars right. so far, and that is only going to go up. That's not going down. And in Maryland, they don't reimburse folks who've had their funds stolen. There are some states that evidently do that. Right. But our state does not. Our our state is saying that because the funds are federally provided, we can't use federal funds to reimburse stolen funds. Yeah. Other states are reimbursing uh, stolen funds with, with state money. Yeah. I think California is doing that, but Maryland is not going to do that. Seems to me like there are many, many areas here where we could do better not the least of which is uh, you know, providing people with the basic security that most people enjoy. Um, I, I, I'm left scratching my head why yeah. that's not happening. It just yeah, doesn't I'm seem sure right I'm sure it would me. cost less than the, the couple hundred thousand of, of dollars of benefits that have already been stolen. 
Yeah. And the coming storm of benefit theft is going to be huge. Yeah. This yeah. is only going to get bigger. Yeah. All right. Well, Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Haru Prakash, Liz Irvin, Rachel Gelfin, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.